All right. Well, welcome to the new people. So my name is Tim Guile. I'm one of the guiding teachers here at Seattle Insight. And as you can see, we have a hybrid system. So we got a bunch of people online and, of course, the ones here in person. So we'll start with a meditation, about 40 minutes or so, doing an insight practice, offer a few words of guidance around that. Then I'm going to do a, we'll do a, actually we'll do a quick, um, about a 20-minute recap talk from last week, have a little break, and then come back and have some small group discussion, kind of exploring this Dharma topic in a way that you can uh, engage with it with each other. A poem called The Sacrament of Letting Go by Rakrina Weiderker. Slowly, she celebrated the sacrament of letting go. First, she surrendered her green, then the orange, yellow, and red. Finally, she let go of her own brown. Shedding her last leaf, she stood empty and silent, stripped bare. Leaning against the winter sky, she began her Virgil, vigil of trust. Shedding her last leaf, she watched it journey to the ground. She stood in silence, wearing the colors of emptiness, her branches wondering, how do you give shade with so much gone? And then the sacrament of waiting began. The sunrise and the sunset watched with tenderness, clothing her with silhouettes that kept her hope alive. They helped her to understand that her vulnerability, her dependence and need, her emptiness, her readiness to receive, were giving her a new kind of beauty. Every morning and every evening they stood in silence and celebrated together the sacrament of waiting. So this month, we're exploring wisdom as part of the three pillars of the Dharma, as Tori made in that little poster over there, if you're in the room. Their pillars are Dana and also Sila, or ethics and generosity. So this this is the second talk that I've given this month around it. And I wanted to focus on three kind of aspects of our practice that tends to allow wisdom to arise. And the first one is connecting with the present, connecting with what's actually here right now. The second one is understanding cause and effect, understanding how our actions and how our relationship to things have a certain consequence or certain things arises from that. And finally, to learn how to release identification that sense of, of stickiness, of claiming that sense of self around 
experience. So this first one, connecting to the present moment, we could talk about is mindfulness. And I think it's helpful to also contrast wisdom with with knowledge. Okay, so knowledge is something that you know helps us navigate the world, figure out things, you know, how to set up the H A V system and how to create Zoom and all these things. This is all the knowledge base. And wisdom, at least the way I'm kind of holding it, is much more of a direct experience. Like there's a saying that what I see, or actually what I hear, I forget. What I see, I know, I I remember. And what I do, I know. Okay, so what I do, I know, that's that wisdom aspect. And meditation and mindfulness allows us to see and learn directly from our own experience. You actually see all the all the teachings not in an abstract way, but how it actually shows up in the, the nitty-gritty of our life. Now this sense of mindfulness, there's different ways we can describe it and explore it. But I pulled out two aspects to kind of get us a handle on that became the basis for the homework this week. All right, and if, uh, hopefully everyone turned in their papers from the homework. <laughs> just kidding. Well, you have a chance to discuss it and, and explore it. You know, the purpose is just to help you engage in your life around, around these Dharma, Dharma concepts, to basically go from knowledge into wisdom. Actually see how it shows up. How does it show up when you're relating to your significant other in your work, with your families, with your friends? So these two aspects that I pulled out are have a dynamic tension with each other. Okay, so one is the sense that mindfulness is actually a, a stepping back, has a quality of observing what's here. The other aspect that I pulled out, I highlighted, was actually that going the opposite direction, actually going into the experience to the point where you're actually resonating with it, you're actually feeling in a deeper, deep way. So actually changes you, actually starts to transform you. Now these two aspects really work hand in hand with us in our lives. Because sometimes the problem or the, the struggle we have with an experience is that it is so overwhelming, so intense, so strong, that we can't help but be awashed in it. We can't help but have our feel like our feet <clears throat> are being <clears throat> excuse me, swept off, off from underneath us. You know, these are situations of intense grief and loss and change. You know, sometimes hearing about something outside our lives, something sometimes what we heard personally. Sometimes trauma comes through our system and is trying to work out. So, and also it could be just the run of the mill being really caught in a thought. You know, being really stuck in some pattern, some idea. Like I just can't stop thinking about it. I'm just obsessing around it. I think on this, maybe this day long we just did uh, two days ago, I use this analogy of the, the merry-go-round mind, or thought stream, we have these thoughts and we just see that same purple horse go by again and again. You know, it's like, I just keep thinking it over and over. I'm not really making much headway. So from that aspect to, all right, just being really gripped by some experience, this sense of stepping back, having it more of an objective perspective, being outside of the experience and actually observing it, learning to establish that quality of witnessing 
helps us create some perspective, helps us see the thing in a more complete way that we can't see when we're in the midst of, when we're lost in the midst of it, because we're too busy reacting, being caught in it. So stepping back and observing. Now, if you just stayed in that mode, though, we would be, start to become a little removed and aloof from life. We wouldn't allow life to really take, be taken in to really affect us, to truly really transform us. That's why this other element of really allowing ourselves to resonate with what we're observing is also an essential part of mindfulness, especially when it leads to that quality of wisdom. So I use this analogy that sometimes I play different musical instruments, like a, a little tin whistle, for example. Sometimes I hit a note, and a guitar string sounds, like the body sounds with that note. Right? So there's that resonance that happens. So like mindfulness is like that guitar that one string is resonating, but the rest of the guitar has a quality of being whole and intact. It still kind of knows it's a guitar. It's not being thinks it's a tin whistle. Now, if we get too caught in this in the experience, we forget that we're a guitar. We become a tin whistle. If you fall, my analogy is getting a little, <laughs> a little out there, but if hopefully you get a sense of that, when we really get caught in something, we kind of lose that perspective. We lose our ground. So where we are in any particular experience and moment, there's this kind of back and forth. Sometimes I need to step back. Sometimes I need to move more forward. Right? It's not something. It's not like a linear progression in our in our lives or our practice. That it depends on the situations going through we're living through. It depends on the state of mind that's happening. And sometimes it's so skillful to step back. Sometimes it's not very skillful to step back. Sometimes it's helpful to go in and resonate. Sometimes that's not so helpful. So we kind of learn that through through practice and through you know just through really experience meeting different situations. We start to understand that sweet spot that we're able to be present, know what's happening, we're connected to the present moment, we're not lost in thought, but we're also connected enough where we're starting to resonate with it without being losing our center, without losing that sense of, of equanimity and, and presence. Another aspect of this connecting to the present moment is that's really where learning is only possible, right? We can be, you know, in a, a thought and an idea which can be really exciting and can be insightful, help us kind of see life in a different way. But again, from a wisdom standpoint, is when that translates into our direct seeing, our direct knowing. You know, that that sense, like if I think about something, if I hear it, I might forget it. I see it, I might remember it, but if I actually do it, if I actually experience it real time in my body, in my mind, in my reactions, then that's something you own. It actually becomes part of your, your wisdom. Also with mindfulness, there's kind of this spectrum of technique. Some techniques are more focused on that kind of a quality of exclusiveness in the awareness. Like I'm just focusing on this one thing, like let's say it's this one bell. So essentially everything else I'm just kind of letting go of except that one sense object. Right? That develops steadiness of attention, develops concentration, it starts to really kind of unify the mind and body. 
But I'm also not seeing anything else that's happening in this moment. Right? The other side of the spectrum is not to have any one object, but simply have this vast receptive field of, of awareness or knowing that's able to kind of perceive whatever's arising. Right? So that can help us see the comings and goings, understand the nature of things like dukkha and selfing and impermanence in more clear ways because we actually see it arising and passing. actually see it in a, in a vaster perspective. The downside is if our attention isn't, if we're not have enough stability of attention, we kind of go into a, instead of a spacious awareness, become more spacey. Right, we get lost in thought. We kind of drift away and lose that contact with the present moment. So just like this dynamic tension between moving toward and moving away, you know, that sense of perspective versus that sense of really resonating, we also go with this tension of how, you know, how broad my attention is, how exclusive, inclusive versus how exclusive. You have to see what's what's the right mixture right now in this this moment. And especially if we're really practicing insight meditation, sometimes I want to really focus in on something that is more hard to see, that's more obscured by my patterns of delusion, that might be painful, have multi-layers of self and belief around it. There's a steadiness that's often needed to do that. Right? And yet I also have to have a, a balance of attention so I don't become swept away. Other times, stepping back and be able to see this more clearly, to see all the way around it, is what's needed. So connecting to the present moment. You know, this is one of the essential elements that allows, you know, at least invites wisdom to start to grow, to start to grow in our own lives through our practice. The next one is understanding cause and effect. Cause and effect. So being present connected to the present moment, allows us to start to perceive that, to actually connect those dots. Because so often we don't really see that, you know, the actions that I do, the impact of those actions, they kind of get covered up by our, maybe our denial, maybe our repressing it, or our sense of trying to protect ourselves. But we start to actually value just noticing what's here, what's actually present. I think Ruth Dennison, one of the senior female teachers in this tradition, once said that we can't. Once you start to practice, you can't really get away with anything, right? Because what's happening is you actually knowing your, you know yourself more and more deeply. You actually value knowing, you know, those emotions that are arising, those sensations that are arising. You start to notice those subtle thoughts, and. That's the, the, both the gift and the downside of being present. We get to know what's here. Really, it's much more of a, an upside because that allows us to start to, to see where we create suffering, where we create struggle in our lives. Part of this is learning to listen to the feedback that life's always giving us. It often shows up as suffering, as dukkha. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons the Buddha started with the first noble truth as dukkha, because that catches our attention. It's like, how should I practice? Just look where there's dukkha, and that's where you practice. That's where you turn your attention to, to understand the nature of it and the release of that. And this is one of the one of the ones which is 
can be challenging because we start to see, really see the, the harm we cause or the impact of our actions. But yet that seeing that harm often helps motivates us into wisdom, into understanding. So an example I gave last week is that I was years ago, you know, I don't know how many years ago, but when my daughter was maybe like, it was a range when I stopped doing it, maybe she was around 10 or so, but there was maybe like 10, 15 years ago. But I would notice that I would have this pattern when we went on a family vacation that I would be kind of uptight really about leaving on time, right? So we got to hurry up, leave so we can go have fun together, right? And so then, of course, that wasn't always the way things unfolded, you know, with having a young child and, and you know, my wife's style and, and there's all this stuff to get together. And I would get kind of really irritated and, and um, not so nice in all my language I would do. And, you know, they would feel an impact, you know, and I would notice the tension that we kept. I just kind of blamed it on them not being ready. That's why I got mad, is not because I was not able to hold the fact that things weren't going the way I wanted, but it was their fault. Until finally I listened, I actually asked them, what's it like when I'm like that? Tell me about the impact of my actions on you. And they, you know, they shared it. They shared that it really wasn't very fun. It was uncomfortable. It was made things very stressful. And using mindfulness, using that quality of resonating with, while still having that perspective and not being lost in it, I was able to, to really hear that. Connecting that dot, my actions and the impact of that action allowed me to really change that action in itself. I started to be much more laid back and relaxed. And okay, if we start late, we start late. You know, and, and they really noticed that difference. And it's something that I was I tried to fix before I tried to change, but once I was triggered by it, I couldn't until I really listened to that impact when I really opened to that. So mindfulness allows you to learn those lessons. Actually sense that. How am I relating? How am I acting? How am I showing up? And what's the echoes that life's getting me back around that? You know, both for good and bad, you know, when people really connect with what you, you're doing and when they feel relaxed and safe and, and at ease, you, you register that also. You know, that's actually that very important too, to see what, what those two sides are. This is echoed many times in the Buddhist teachings. He would use different examples. One was looking at uh, two kinds of thoughts. He would say, okay, I noticed the thoughts that led to more suffering the thoughts that led to more freedom. It's like, why don't I just focus on the thoughts that lead to more freedom and not add more energy to those? But to get to that point, he had to, to practice. He had to actually see the impact of his... He actually had to know he's having a thought. He had to know that there's a whole thing going on. He had to perceive the effects of that. So mindfulness really is essential for us to start to connect that cause and effect. Again, it's not from an intellectual standpoint. That may be where we start, the sense of knowledge. But when you actually see it directly for yourself, it's, you, it's undisputable. Undis, un, um, you know that. You know it for yourself. And then that's a whole different way of, of acting in the world, not because you should be nice 
or you should be kind, you actually realize that not being kind doesn't make any sense. Like the pain of it, you, you feel it so clearly, it just it starts to fall away more and more in your life. And sometimes this happens without us really being so aware of it. We just start to find that things we used to do, the ways we used to react, don't come up in the same way. You know, if you don't believe me, ask the people who know you well and ask, ask them, you know, what do you think meditation has done for me? What do you think? Or, or maybe ask them, this, should I keep doing it? <laughs> and probably most of them, it's like, no, you, you should keep doing that. You should keep going on, on practice because you, you're easier to be around. You're nicer to be around. You'll listen more. You're less reactive. Right? So that's, you're connecting with that cause and effect. And the third one is kind of really part of both of these. And that is the sense of identification. The sense of identification around really anything and everything. Right? What I mean by that is identification is sometimes we think of it like I'm identified in a role I have in my life. Like let's say I'm a parent and my child goes off to college. There's a big transition. You sometimes notice in those transitions the places where you're really identified with some role. Right? You lose a job. You lose a relationship. You lose a loved one. Or something just changes, something that you want to change. I don't, didn't want my daughter to stay down in the basement for the rest of her life. I wanted her to go, go off to college and learn and have experiences. But still, there's a part of me that was identified with her being a young child. I wanted to care for her from that young child perspective. So that's that rub of life. That's that suffering. This often shows us where our, we are identified. Okay? So again, life is always showing us this. You know, when someone says, says something that really triggers you, that's part of the identification. Now, identification actually goes much deeper, too. There's, that element goes very deep of that self, that sense of who I am. There's also just the way that we, a more subtle way of it, is we take a look at something and we label it. We know what that is. You know, I see a chair, I see a mic, I see a bell. Instead of seeing the bell in a fresh way, in an immediate way, I tend to organize it based on my experience with it, what I do with it, how I ring it. Of course, some of that's very helpful, very useful. Right? Okay, it's better for me to know I hit it with this, this end instead of that end. You know, know how, I know how hard to hit it, I you know how long to hit it. But that also is the other side of it is that we become, you know, I'm really, my sense of me and relationship to it loads up. And sometimes you can see that in ways that really cause a lot of harm in our lives. You know, a lot of harm when we take someone and we say, okay, that is that kind of a person, and I kind of put them in a box, I keep them constricted based on my own limited understanding, my own beliefs. You know, it's a form of violence. We do the same thing with ourselves. So that's why with meditation, sometimes, um, I remember someone said that on the day long, that they just started to notice things felt more vivid, more fresh, more alive, just the senses, right? So what's happening is we're kind of letting go of our normal illusion of thought to actually connect with things directly. 
this is one, one another way that the identification starts to fall away. And identification, if you look at a lot of the the growths of, of wisdom is really around that sense of identification, being released, being seen through. And so these three elements of connecting with the present moment, you know, learning how to actually know what the, what's here through our layers of thought, to actually connect with it directly, to work with that balance of stepping away of observation and also moving in, being resonating, you know, finding that balance the sense of connecting our actions with the results of those actions and learning from that, actually learning from that. And then interwoven through all that is learning to see how we identify, how we claim that sense of I, of me, of mine, that sense of you and yours. The relativeness of that and then seeing through it to the absolute reality, the absolute nature of you know, what we really are. And these become bedrocks for how wisdom starts to grow in our lives. All right, let's just sit quietly for a couple of moments, letting those words settle. All right, in just a moment, we'll take a five-minute break, but I want to just prep you on the discussion point for the homework. So the homework last week, if you missed it, was that when you were being mindful, either during formal practice or daily life, Bring attention to that dynamic tension between observation, so that sense of witnessing, and receptivity, that sense of resonating with experience. You know, which situations and experiences do you withdraw into observation, and which situations do you become overwhelmed or receiving too much? And notice how you can find balance between those. Right? So we're talking around that. And I'll say it again, but when we come back from the break, we'll have a chance to form into small groups, and it's such an essential piece. If you've never done that, it really deepens your practice to actually talk to other people about how your practice is. Where do you get to do that in your life? You know, not very many places to actually share what you're seeing, what you're struggling with, and hearing other people. Okay, welcome back. All right, anything you'd like to ask or share or reflect on, you're welcome to raise your hand. And if you grab the mic, we can hear you online. Or online, you can just raise your virtual hand. Yes. Okay, talk more about the identification part and, and the aspect that's kind of uh, that's limiting or more of an issue with, with being identified. Yeah. Well, to sum up, you know, the Buddhist perspective on identification is basically that's what creates suffering. You know, we also have to temper that with the, the realization or the understanding that we also need, there's a healthy kind of identification that's also needed, you know, for us to, to develop as human beings, to have relationships, to have a sense of belonging. Those are all forms of identification which are, are helpful. So it's kind of like a, we kind of go back and forth between like the, the relative reality and the kind of the relative quality of identification, which is, can be very helpful. You know, like I feel like I belong to Sims or I belong to my family or, you know, I, I identify in this role, I inhabit that role, that kind of sense of embodiment. That's all very helpful. The part when it gets, the Buddha would point to is that 
when that changes, when that ends, and we feel a lot of suffering around that, and you know, we don't not able to just say gracefully, okay, that that part of my life has ended, or now I'm going on to another part. It's like, no, I want to be 20 again, or I want to be, you know, back in that situation, or I want to have my daughter be a kindergartner forever. You know, all of those kind of that clinging, that constriction causes causes suffering. You know, that's kind of the obvious quality of it. And then there's a more subtle quality of it that, you know, usually our, our sense is like, here I am talking to you. There's a sense of me here, you over there, two separate things. You know, there's this sense of identification or separation, which, again, there's a functional part. There's a relative part to that. And that quality of identification also is really tied to the more subtle ways that suffering arises, you know, that sense of, of that sense of creating that sense of self, because the self is a, it's kind of instead of being a continuous thing, it's something that's kind of momentarily arising and passing away. Sometimes it you know comes very quickly. Sometimes it has a more sustained quality. But if it's a sense of self which we're happy about and enjoy, we suffer when it ends. When it's a sense of self that's not so pleasant, we suffer while it's there, right? So the Buddha was saying that is actually kind of a little trick we play on ourselves, a trick of perception, you know, that we actually aren't so separate, that we create that sense of separateness. Again, there's a, it's really helpful functionally to be able to do that, but that's kind of the basic delusion that he pointed to as, as a way to really release that unnecessary suffering. Does that help? There's a lot of, a lot of pieces there. Anything else? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, sorry, online, you can't hear our, I'll, I'll paraphrase her question or follow-up on that is, yeah, the seed, the, the suffering that or the pain that comes from being identified when that ends, but is, then is it like, should I never have been identified in the first place, right? So that's, that's a really, that's a common thing that our minds kind of go to and that's the way we kind of sometimes misinterpret what the Buddha is teaching. Because if we follow that logic, means I should just kind of like not talk to anybody. <laughs> I should not make any kind of lasting connections because they're inevitably going to end in, in separation. So I'm just going to save myself the problem and the pain, right? But that's, that's really a misinterpretation. You know, I remember hearing about some, some teacher or some some monastic who, who basically would see a beautiful sunrise and turn his back on it just so he wouldn't cling to it, you know. <laughs> and, you know, it just feels like there's something off about that. So it's much more of a, a quality of, of that really fully being connected, fully alive, like there's actually no separation between you and experience. Again, from a we have to, the caveat is we have to kind of often go through kind of a healthy differentiation and separation. Okay, I'm, I know who I am. You know, that's that part of, of growing up that so many of us don't ever fully do, right? You know, but there's also this quality of, um, of just being very connected and, and intimate and, and connected to things. But at the same time, it's not kind of going back to that sense of me. So it's this—it's a paradox, but it's—it's a—it's really that—that's an important edge, and we could talk for months about that, if not years.
Okay, thanks for that question. And Trish, do you mind grabbing the mic so I can hear you? Thank you. Yeah, so if you could just say a little more about when mindfulness, you're talking about when it helps to stand back and observe versus when it helps to go in and resonate, mm -hmm. because we're kind of discussing what resonate, what you meant by resonate with something, yeah, yeah. but I'm not clear what you meant. So if you could discuss more about the resonating with something. Sure. Yeah, there's how... Um... How subtle do you want me to go with that? You want me to be kind of an obvious example or a more subtle example? Okay, more subtle. Okay. Okay, here's here's one. As our practice kind of deepens and matures, we start to have this different relationship to stillness, to quiet, to kind of that that kind of background almost matrix of, of stillness. We start to really appreciate that and, and like it and observe it and really drawn to it because there's an ease to that, there's a peace to that, that sense of identification is really quiet there. And we can kind of hang out for a long time in that sense of observing it. There's a subtle sense of me as a meditator observing this subtle quality of stillness. And yet, in that sense of, of separation of two things, subject and object, of me, the witness, me, the meditator, and the thing I'm watching, that's that whole, that's, there's identification there, that sense of distance, of separation. And so that's one example of that, that willingness to really resonate with that stillness, to actually let that stillness, it's kind of like you're just letting yourself wade into it. You're letting that any sense of separation fall away. So you really see that deeply inside if that's actually what you are. To do that, there has to be a, a letting go of that identification or that sense of self, that constriction around that, you know, that assumption around self that needs to fall away. And that's often very scary from the self's perspective, from the ego's perspective. It's much more comfortable to be, oh, I'm going to be just hang out here in this witness perspective. But when I actually let myself go into that, impermanence is another great example of that. You know, we can observe the fact of change. I mean, it's how many times do you like look at at other people and say, "Well, they've really changed over the years," or you know, you see you know see a child you knew when they were taller and now they're a college student. Wow, you've really grown up. You've really changed. Well, how often do we realize? Oh, I've also changed a lot. That change has also affected me. So you take that in really in a deep way to realize you let that resonate with you. So instead of observing it from a distance, you let yourself, okay, I'm just going to really fully open to it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And same, you know, we can do many examples interpersonally. You know, I, I hear that you're upset versus let me really take that in. Let me really no putting techniques on it, no kind of distancing, but really let that fact come into my, really let it sink in. All right, does that help, Tish? All right, Kimberly. Thanks, Tim. Um, I want to sort of carry on that, that subtle example because um, I've been thinking a lot about far less far less subtle examples and actually been trying to work with far less subtle examples where a situation perhaps is 
really painful. And, and I guess I'm sort of thinking about the observing as an opportunity to, um, try to separate from the story so that in, in resonating to be able to get into the feeling in the body versus being sort of flooded, which to me is often the flooding is really about, um, getting sort of, um, swept away by the, by the story. And it's, it's, it's incredibly helpful and effective just to, to stop thinking about the story, stop thinking about the cause and really just going into, okay, I feel tightness in, in my belly. I feel heat in my throat or what, whatever that may be to resonate in that way. In, in the example that you just gave, however, I think it's, it's, it's really sort of fascinating because, um, I actually was noticing while we had this sit, this, this sense of, of stillness. And, um, and as you're talking, I'm thinking, well, in a way, maybe I was having a, a really a story about stillness mm-hmm. versus actually truly resonating or, or feeling stillness. And that's a hard one because when it's negative emotion, it does have a very embodied sort of, um, jump out at you, um, manifestation. So I just wonder if you can comment a little bit in, in this more subtle example of, of, of stillness of what it means to, to resonate in it. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Kimberly, that's, that's a great description of, of that, you know, the utility of, of kind of stepping back in the midst of something to just, yeah, go into the body experience versus the story, releasing the story. But yet, well, you know, with the stillness, you know, we can have this kind of subtle story about what that is and what that means. And if you step, it's, it's interesting because it's almost like it's the same process, the same pattern that happens when we get really caught in something. It's just much more subtle. It's much more quiet. And so it's a similar process that if I, there's still that kind of that relationship to the thinking mind and the, the stories around it and the identification around it that kind of keeps us churning, keeps us really enmeshed in it. To be able to step out of the story, go into the body experience of it, you know, that grounds us. So with the stillness, there can be that much more subtle, subtle quality of, oh, this is like, you know, this is what the Buddha is talking about. This is Dharma. This is stillness. And yet if we tune into it, there's, there's still the, the essential same flavor of you having an experience. You know, so that's that sense of you having the experience versus just the experience being there, just the experience being known. So it's it seems it's, it's somatically it gets kind of tricky in there, but it's really that that kind of that middle middle person of of self starts to fall away. So there's just the, this what's being experienced, and there's just what experiences it. If that makes sense, it's I don't know if did I get to that okay. Yeah, what really just helped is that last part when you said that sense of self starting to fall away. Um, that was very visceral in a way. And so, so thank you. That really helps. Yes. Yeah. And so you start to tune more and more into that sense of self where that is. It's often really obvious when we're really caught in something like, okay, I'm, I definitely know I'm the one who's upset right now. Right. And we can also see we can back away from that identification by going into the body, just like you described. Letting go of the story, then you're feeling the emotion, the physical sensations, right? That's that stepping away from that strong identification. And it's just the same process when it's so subtle, 
Um, and it kind of gets to that, just that you can almost feel that hunger or that need to always be doing something with this moment to kind of, and how that reorients you who's the doer. And it's, there's really an act of faith and trust when that falls away. And yet there's also this, why did I make such a big deal about this? Okay, other questions? We're, we're going deep t- tonight, but we can go wherever you like to. <laughs> yes, do you mind grabbing the mic for us? Thanks. Um, I just have a question of clarification, because I think maybe I've had this backwards in my head for a long time. Okay, okay. Um, so when you talk about resonance... Yes. The way I think I heard you just say it, resonance um, would involve much less so um, identification and the like observation where you're being the observer, like that's where the identification lies. Is that is that is that an accurate statement? I guess. <laughs> well, I'm kind of using it all over the place. Okay. So there's there's a part of the, the kind of observation which is actually skillful and helpful, right? Especially when we're really enmeshed and caught in something. But it also can turn on ahead and be not so helpful when I'm creating distance. So it kind of depends on, you know, you know, each situation. I mean, like sometimes when we're really, life is just, you know, just dumping us on our heads and it's just so hard just a little bit of coming back away from the story, coming to our bodies, kind of stepping away from that, reorienting is very helpful, right? That's that's essential. You know, other times that's that becomes a distancing that we we realize, okay, that's really what I have to let go of. On the other side, the resonance is like that that sense of vibration or like I'm vibrating with this. I'm really I'm not, I'm not keeping anything between me and it. There's like that self and other, it falls away. They're just that. Sometimes we're just in that because we're just lost in the middle of this mind storm and this emotional state and this this deep grief and this trauma. And then you know, that's not so helpful. We have to be able to step back. So it's like if we can do both at once, that's really the key, that I can know that, okay, um, there's a sense of spaciousness, a sense of, of perspective, and yet there's nothing keeping my, myself separate. So actually it becomes really, when they both come together, that's that's when the practice is really cooking, if you will. Okay. All right, good. Thank you. All right, anyone else like to ask or share anything? We have a, maybe one or two more, if there's anyone. Okay, Alan. Uh, let me find out how to lower my hand here. Um, yeah, Tim, I, I want to ask something, and I, I hope this doesn't uh, come out the wrong way. Um, it is it has been asked sincere. Um, in in this tradition, is there ever a time for just? dropping the techniques and saying, you know, whatever comes and whatever it is, you know, it's like, 
so much, so much in this experience and this practice trying to, you know, make for me myself feel better or to find something, to understand something, untangle something. Uh, in, in your experience, have you found a place where it's just like, whatever comes, you know, just. Yes. Do you want me to say more about that? <laughs> it's, what, if, if you, yeah. Um, sure. You don't have to. Yeah. Every, every technique has its, its place where it's very helpful. And then it has a point where it has this limitation that the technique actually starts to become, instead of being a, sorry, a, a pathway or a helpful guidepost, it becomes more of an imprisoning thing or a way that constrains us in a way that's not so helpful. You know, and that's that piece we start to, I think of our practice, I think you can also say every technique is designed to fail eventually. You know, that we eventually just let it go. That kind of really beautiful way the Buddha talked about this was crossing, you know, he talked about crossing samsara, like crossing these floods. We create a raft. The raft is like our technique and our practice and our skillful means. It gets across as across to the other shore. And then at that point, we just let go of the raft. You know, the raft is no longer needed. And that's when the practice becomes much more formless, much more, just is like we're much more, just really tune into that subtle quality of selfing or not selfing. And, you know, anything like trying to be mindful or trying to do this, we can see because loading up the self again in relationship to it. And this is a subtle, subtle piece, but also I think we sometimes get stuck in that because we can get really comfortable being in that witness perspective and that sense of, of the mindful perspective. And that's why I talked about that resonance. At some point, we need to really go into the stillness. Instead of observing the stillness, let ourselves just be immersed in it. The Buddha would say, it's like, you go across, you, you cross the flood, but then we carry the raft around with us. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it, it burdens us. It keeps us constrained. It keeps us limited in how we're seeing. So I think practice, yeah, does evolve into that, that formless practice, that releasing of all techniques, you know, and that's, that's when the, that sense of stillness, that sense of emptiness is really starting to permeate us. And, you know, it's often not a linear process. We might have times that that's really what's, what we're really called to do. Other times we need to like breathing in, breathing out, we need to come back and try to find some place of grounding in the midst of that. And, learning eventually to find through that stillness again through what life has, has brought for us or what has emerged from our, our past history or past reactions. Does that help, Alan? Yeah, it does. Thank you, Tim. You're welcome. All right, anyone else? Yes. Sure. There's a question around from Austin around the metaphor of tuning the guitar. So the, you know, from the suttas? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the Buddha, oh, I forget the name of it, but he's basically giving advice to a particular monk who used to be a musician. 
right? And they're, they're sitting on the, the bank and there's a, you know, a boat going by and someone's playing a lute or some kind of instrument. And so he's saying, okay, because the, the, I think the monk was struggling with effort, like either striving too hard or it's not striving enough. And the Buddha said, okay, when you used to be, used to play the, the lute or whatever they called it back then, if the string was too loose, would it make music? No. It was, you know, be out of tune. If it was too tight, would it make music? No. When it was just in tune, you know, then it would sound right. And so the idea is to find where is that in tuneness. Now, how do you tune it? You know, what's, what's, what note are you trying to go toward? That, you know, the Buddha didn't necessarily didn't answer that. I don't remember in that sutta. But using that as a metaphor, that effort, yeah, sometimes we can go too much or we can go too little. There's that sweet spot. And we often learn that, you know, through that feedback. You know, like I think, okay, I'm really, and it changes too. It's like what worked for us early on may not work for us later on, like with Ellen's question, that that tuning may change as, as our, as, because effort should become softer and softer. It's like, like anything, anything that you're skilled at, when you first start to do it, you're doing these big movements. You get really skilled at it, masterful at it. It's just the subtle little adjustments, and that that's all that's needed. Well, the beginner's like <laughs> all this stuff. So it's similar to, to mindfulness. You know, and you start to learn what effort, and, and probably more importantly, you can recognize the effects of that effort, the effort that's generating more inner tension versus the effort that's starting to open things and release things. Thank you, Austin. Okay, we've come to our nine o'clock hour and I'd like to honor the time. So just again, thank you all for your questions, your engagement. Thank you for your, your generosity through Donna. And we will next week have one more talk on wisdom and then we'll move into the next pillar, which I forget with one, which it is, whether it's Donna or Sila. Okay, I'll see you next week if that works for you. And if not, I'll see you whenever that arises. All right, have a wonderful evening. Thank you all.